0: Imagine a young man, a teenager you care about, one you really love, a family member or a friend or the son of a friend. This man comes to you in distress and he shares this with you. Listen closely as he tells you what's on his heart. I don't know what's going on. Brooke has just been ghosting me for the past three
1: days. She's really the only thing I've ever lived for, and now she's gone she's just she, she's just for the past week she's kind of just been fading and yet now it's just I've been so depressed lately. my grades are terrible my parents are mad at me because they say that I'm failing school and that I'll never amount to anything in life that I'll end up under a bridge and I'm just, I am just—I just feel like I'm a burden to everyone. I think it would be better if I was gone. I don't know how I can go on without her. I'm thinking about killing myself.
0: So now you have this upset, desperate teenager in front of you. A teenager who wants to be dead. What do you do? How do you handle this situation? But before we get into that, let's start with you. We created a scenario to evoke what might come up in real life when you encounter a loved one who is suicidal? What do you notice going on inside you right now? What's happening in your body? What's going on with your emotions, with assumptions or beliefs about yourself? What's happening with memories, or desires, or impulses? What are parts of you saying to you right now about you and your capacity to handle this situation? I want you to pay attention to those messages. I'm going to make a bold claim here that the number one thing you struggle with in being a first responder to a loved one with suicidal levels of distress is... your own internal experience. The problem you have in responding to this is not so much inside the distressed loved one. The problem you have is inside of you. It's deep within you. It's so easy to get wrapped up in your own fear or shame or guilt or anger, your own sense of inadequacy, Did you feel any of that in this example when you're confronted with a teenager in such distress who feels so strongly the desire to die? Did you feel uncomfortable at all, on edge, uncertain, anxious, maybe ineffective or inadequate? Did you sense a responsibility but not knowing what to do? Did you experience any self-criticism, any of those experiences? If so, you've come to the right place. I can help you with that. Welcome to the podcast Interior Integration for Catholics. I like being together with you in this whole adventure as we learn about suicide and what to do about it, all grounded in a Catholic worldview. I am Dr. Peter Malinowski, passionate Catholic first and clinical psychologist as well, and you are listening to the Interior Integration for Catholics podcast. Thank you for being here with me. Interior Integration for Catholics is part of our broader outreach, Souls and Hearts, which brings the best of psychology grounded in a Catholic worldview to you and the rest of the world through our website, soulsandhearts.com. This is our fifth episode in our series on suicide. In episode 76, we got into what the secular experts have to say about suicide. In episode 77, we reviewed the suicides in sacred scripture in the Bible. In episode 78, we sought to really understand the phenomenological worlds of those who kill themselves. What happens inside of them? How can we really understand these suicidal behaviors more clearly? And in the last episode, episode 79, we took a deep dive into the devastating impact of suicide on the parents, spouses, children, and siblings, the ones who were left behind. Today's episode, number 80, is entitled, How to Help a Loved One Who Was Suicidal. We are getting into the nitty gritty of what do you do when someone you are close to is suicidal? In short, how do you love somebody who is so distressed, so desperate that they are seriously considering killing themselves? Now, first, a brief caveat. I can't, in a single podcast episode, train you to be a crisis intervention specialist. That takes dedicated training. But you know what? Most people with these suicidal levels of distress, they don't seek out crisis intervention specialists or therapists or counselors first. No, they go to the people they know. They go to the people whom they hope and maybe still believe will love them. In other words, they go to you. What you'll learn today is for your own information to help you understand what's going on and how best to act as a first responder and a bridge to long-lasting help that can heal. Diligis proximum tuum tamquam tiepsum. Love your neighbor as yourself. The second great commandment. Love is a verb. It's an action. So, what if our neighbor is the teenager from our lead-in today? How do we love a suicidal person? How do we love him? Let's step back just a minute though and take a look at the three components of love. And when I'm talking about love here, I mean it in the sense of agape or in the sense of caritas, charity, right? There are three components to that kind of love. This is coming from my own understanding, right? So this is a little bit of speculative Melanosky theology here, but I'm going to lay out what I think the three components of charity really are. The first is benevolence right? Bone voluntatis in Latin means goodwill. We want to will the highest good for the other person. Benevolence, goodwill. That's the first component. Second component is capacity. And that means that we have the ability, we have the competence to really be able to do what we need to do to bring about the good for the other person. This is our capacity. That means that we understand the other person, right? We operate in the mode of the receiver. That depends on us understanding ourselves because if we don't understand ourselves very well, it's very hard to understand another person. It also involves our capacity to choose the good, which is another definition of freedom, right? We need to have a well-governed self that's regulated, that's organized, that's fairly calm, that's compassionate, that good human formation, We also need to possess certain virtues and also knowledge that's relevant to the particular situation in which we find ourselves. And we're working on all of those things today, especially that knowledge. So that's the second thing. First thing, benevolence. Second thing, capacity. The third thing is constancy. We need to have that peace and interior integration so that we can be consistent in the way that we love other people. According to the catechism, paragraph 1829, the fruits of charity are joy, peace, and mercy. Beautiful things, especially in a situation like this for our distressed person to engage with, right? And so, when we are attempting to love another person, when we're looking to love another person, that means loving them in all of their parts. Now, remember That suicidal distress makes so much more sense if we understand each person not as some kind of uniform, monolithic, homogenous, single personality, but rather as a dynamic system, including a core self and also these parts. That helps to explain... So much of the different behaviors and different emotional states and different belief systems and so forth that can oscillate or that a person can cycle through when they're experiencing distress. And what are these parts that I'm talking about? Well, let's go back to a definition of them. These parts are like separate modes of operating, They're like separate, independently operating personalities within us. And each one of these parts has its own needs. It has its own role in our life. It has its own emotions, body sensations. It's got its own guiding beliefs and assumptions. Each part has its typical thoughts, its own intentions, its desires, its attitudes, and its impulses. Each part has an interpersonal style. Each part has a worldview. You can think of them, like I said, as separate modes of operating if that's helpful. And each of these parts also has a different idea about suicide, different opinions about suicide. Unintegrated parts, these are parts that are not connected to the core self, that are off on their own. They are not focused on loving others usually. They're usually focused on trying to help the self in some way but they're not focused very well on other people because they've got these particular agendas that they're trying to execute. Unintegrated parts can be exiled and parts, as I said before, have very different attitudes towards suicide. Now, another word about blending, right? That's a key concept here. And blending is when a part takes over a person, when it takes over a person's seat of consciousness, when it takes over the self and that is when someone believes that they are the part right this this means that they feel the part's emotions they hold on to the part's beliefs and that their behavior reflects the impulses that this part demonstrates or that this part holds on to right so a part is blended when it's taken over your seat of consciousness and when it floods you with its emotions, when you get all caught up in its beliefs, and when your worldview and perspective is really dominated by the assumptions and beliefs of this part. So, this blended part is now driving the bus. It's got all the other parts on board the bus, but they're not having much impact right now, and the self is Incapacitated. This is sort of analogous to being overtaken by your passions, right? Such as an irrational, uh, such as an irascible passion like fear or anger. All right, so what do we need to be paying attention to? What do we need to be noticing? I want to review some signs of significant suicide risk. And I'm drawing these from six sources. Six sources that I looked at that I thought were really helpful and I sort of brought them all together. That's the Columbia University Department of Psychiatry, the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, which you can find at afsp.org, the National Institute of Mental Health at nimh.nih.gov, the Suicide Prevention Resource Center at sprc.org, the Suicide Prevention Lifeline at suicidepreventionlifeline.org. And also, helpguide at helpguide.org. Those are the six sources I'll be drawing from. When we're looking at these signs, these behaviors may indicate that someone is thinking seriously about suicide. So, the first one, talking about wanting to die, talking about wanting to kill themselves, saying things like, I wish I hadn't been born, saying things like, I'd be better off dead, or if I see you again, you know, implying that you might not be, that they might not see you again. That's the kind of thing that that is often the key, that's often a key sign, talking about wanting to die. Second thing, preoccupation with death, a heavy focus on death, dying, sometimes violence. Third thing, talking about feeling empty, hopeless, or having no reason to live. This is where that helplessness, that hopelessness, that sense of depression comes in. The fourth thing that is an obvious sign is making a plan or looking for a way to kill themselves. Looking for lethal suicide methods online, stockpiling pills, buying a firearm, that kind of thing. The fifth thing is talking about a lot of guilt or shame. Starting to really share that. Number six, rejecting compliments from others. Number seven, talking about feeling trapped or that there are no solutions, that nothing is ever going to get better. Number eight, feeling unbearable pain. This could be emotional pain, obviously, that depression, anxiety, agitation, or it could also be physical pain, like from a medical condition. Number nine, a loss of a sense of meaning or purpose in life. And this is really common among the elderly. And also common among the elderly is talking about being a burden to others. That's number ten really focusing on feeling useless and feeling like you're a burden to other people. Number 11, apathy, not caring about things that the person used to be passionate about, feeling kind of numb, detached, not being able to take enjoyment in things. Number 12, not caring about the future. Number 13, you might see this neglect of personal appearance, neglect of hygiene, this lack of self-care. Number 14, using alcohol or drugs more often. Number 15, greater anxiety or agitation, even panic. Number 16, withdrawing from family and friends, that isolation. Number 17, changing eating or sleeping habits. Number 18, showing a lot of anger, irritability, and even rage, right? Much more than usual. Or there could be talk about revenge. Number 19, risky behavior, taking risks that could lead to death, such as driving recklessly. Number 20, displaying extreme mood swings, changing suddenly from being very sad to very happy or from very happy to being, to being very sad. Number 21, previous suicide attempts. Number 22, giving away important possessions Number 23, saying goodbye to friends and family. Number 24, being exposed to others who have taken their own life, right? If there have been recent family members or friends or acquaintances or even celebrities, right, that the person didn't know but that were popular that have committed suicide, that can be a risk factor. Number 25, putting one's affairs in order, such as making a will, or in the case of a younger person, like cleaning up the room and organizing everything and separating it all out. And number 26, these are, this is, these are signs that I will add, right? Sometimes you see real significant changes in the person's attitude toward God and God's love and God's providence. It can often be feelings of abandonment or betrayal by God, really difficult God images coming up in that the person feels very disconnected from God, very unloved by God. And then 27, changes in religious practices. For example, the person is no longer going to mass or no longer praying in the way that they were before, giving up religious practices. Those are other signs that someone may be considering suicide seriously. So, what do you do when someone is at risk of suicide, right? So, the first thing, let's just take some time and focus on ourselves, right? Let's calm down. We want to be in our own window of tolerance. We don't want to be activated and hyper-aroused, getting into that fight or flight. We don't want to be dropping into that numbing out hypo arousal, that freeze response, we really need to be in our own space. We need to be grounded ourselves. We need to be calm ourselves. So we need to be aware of how we're doing in the moment so that we can be helpful to the other person. And that often may mean for those of you that are Catholic and serious about the faith, that may mean some prayer. And that doesn't have to be real long, but sort of just like asking for God's light, for his intercession, for an awareness of what's going on, and also that we can be an instrument in his hands. We don't want to forget that, to really take a little bit of time to pray. That doesn't necessarily mean that you invite the other person into prayer, because that might not be helpful in that moment. They might react negatively to that, but to really have yourself in that grounded place, because that way God's going to be able to work through you more effectively. So the next thing is to assume that you are the only one that he told about his distress. Sometimes it can be tempting to believe that, oh, he's told other people, so I'm not the only one that's on the spot here. You may be the only one that he's told. You are the one that's on the scene right now. You are the one that's in this particular relationship at this moment in time. And so we want to have an honest conversation talk to the person in private and understand that this person may be dominated by one or more parts right now. And that that part may seem like they are telling the whole story, but there are usually other parts with different beliefs and desires about living and dying. It's not just the one part that's in charge right now. So be with the person. It's really important this concept of being with Your presence, that's really what's important. Your desire to be able to be with them, not so much finding the right words, not so much coming up with the solutions, right? And as part of being with them to avoid judgment. When people are all taken over by a part, especially a part that's suicidal and looks to that as a way to have relief or as the only means that it knows of to try to escape from the pain. There's going to be all kinds of distorted perceptions about the person's self, about other people, about their situation. We want to avoid judging that. We want to avoid evaluating that. We want to allow the person to tell us what they're thinking and feeling and sensing in the moment, right? If the person's really agitated, you can invite them to take a breath to kind of slow some breathing down. And like I said before, you know, man, monitor your own breathing. Cause that's one way that we can help our, our central nervous systems to calm down too, is to slow down our breathing. It's important to communicate to the other person that you really do care about them. You can say things like, you know, I've been feeling really concerned about you lately or recently I've noticed some differences in you and I've wondered how you've been doing. You can talk about wanting to check in with the person because they ha- maybe haven't seemed themselves lately, seemed kind of off. Also, you can use parts language if you think the other person will resonate with that. It seems like a part of you is really desperate right now. And that's helpful because it's accurate, right? It's a part that's desperate. It's not necessarily all of the person, right? Right. It's important to listen to the person's story to take their concerns seriously. The research has shown that talking about suicide reduces the likelihood of enacting any kind of suicide behavior, right? When did you start feeling like this? These are questions that you can use to draw out the person to help them be able to talk about their experience and put it into words. Did something happen to make you start feeling this way? Have you thought about getting help? Let them know that they've been heard. Mirror back to them what you're hearing and invite them to help you understand what they're experiencing more deeply. This is such a critical part of being able to be with people who are in distress. The next thing is to ask directly if they are considering suicide. Are you thinking about killing yourself? Right now, for a long time, there was this fear that if you brought up suicide, if the person is not talking about suicide, but they're talking about how distressed they are, and you ask about suicide, that you might somehow implant the idea of suicide and increase the risk that they might act out in a suicidal way. Well, there's been a bunch of research on this 2012 study by Charles Mathias and his colleagues in the journal Suicide and Life-Threatening Behaviors. They assessed suicide, they asked questions about it every six months. And what they realized was that when you ask about it, the likelihood of suicidal ideation goes down. In other words, talking about suicide is associated with lower levels of suicidal thinking over time. So, let's not hesitate to ask directly about suicide. There can be really helpful things to say, like, you're not alone in this. I'm here with you, for you. You may be able to say something like, I may not be able to understand exactly how you feel, but I care about you. I want to help. And you may be able to say something like, I may not be able to understand exactly how you feel, but I care about you and I want to help. It's important to encourage people to seek treatment, to contact their therapist, to get in touch with somebody that can be more helpful. This next one can be a little tricky, but if you can facilitate the removal of lethal means as the situation permits, if you can remove firearms or get rid of drugs that they might overdose on in the house, that might be really helpful to them, right? It's important to stay with the person until there can be more stabilization there can be parts of us that want to get away, that want to move away from the situation because it's so uncomfortable. But if we can make sure that the person's in a better place and on a track, that's likely to be helpful to them. If we can be that bridge to other resources, that's important. There are the hotlines like the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-TALK, T-A-L-K. And when you call that hotline, first you'll get a message that tells you that you've reached the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. And then they'll play a little hold music while they connect you with a skilled, trained crisis worker who is geographically closest to you. So they actually try to connect you with somebody that's geographically near their closest center. And that person will listen to you try to understand what kinds of issues are going on. And you don't actually have to be the person who is suicidal to call this. You can be helping somebody. You can call for them. Those crisis workers can provide resources and also know that these calls are confidential and they are free. Also, you know, it's interesting that the lifelines don't just deal with suicide. They also deal with things like substance abuse, economic concerns, financial problems, relationship issues, sexual problems, domestic abuse, depression, mental and physical illnesses, loneliness, all kinds of things that they work with. So, it's not just about it's not just about suicide prevention. Now, some people may not want to talk, but they would be willing to text. So, the National Suicide prevention lifeline also has a texting option. You can text hello to 741741 to initiate a text conversation with one of their crisis intervention specialists. The other thing is, is that if you can connect the person to mental health services that are local, a therapist that you trust, or bring them to an emergency room if they're acutely suicidal, that can also be really life-saving. So, the important thing is also to stay connected so that that person knows that you are going to follow up with them, right? Especially after that bridge is made to other services. There's a few things really to avoid. And these can be natural impulses for many of us, right? We might have a desire to do some of these things. So, I really want to spend some time on these, right? The first thing to avoid is arguing with the person that's unlikely to be helpful to them, right? We don't want to discuss how suicide is wrong. We don't want to debate the value of his or her life. So often, people start here. They start by trying to convince the person that whatever they're saying isn't actually real or isn't actually true. And this is almost always unsuccessful. Imagine somebody comes to you like, really depressed teenager right after this breakup, you know, and is talking about how, how distressed he is. And you say, well, things are not as bad as you, um, as you think they are. You're looking at this through, you know, gray colored glasses. Uh, there are so many people that love you and you're such a good person. I mean, would you really expect him to say at that point, Oh, Oh, I see that I've been totally misperceiving this. I didn't realize it until you pointed it out to me that I do have a great self-worth and there are many people that love me and that there are many reasons for me to go on living. Thank you for that. I feel so much better. It doesn't work like that. Most of us know that it's not going to work like that at a deeper level, right? We don't want to minimize people's problems. We don't want to give advice. We don't want to offer ways to fix their problems. We also need to be really careful not to promise confidentiality, not to be sworn to secrecy, right? Sometimes people who are distressed try to extract that from us. It's not a good idea because we may need to bring other people in to help them. In fact, we almost always do need to do that. So, well, how do you assess the urgency of a situation or the immediacy of a uh, of of a suicidal situation, right? Well, there's kind of four things you want to look at. Plan means a set time and intent. Plan means set time and intent, All right? So, the one question would be, do you have a plan? Right, is there a plan in place for committing suicide? Second thing, do you have what you need to carry out the plan? Do you have the firearms? Do you have enough prescription drugs? Do you have all the piping and tubing for some sort of carbon monoxide death, all right? Do you have what you need to carry out the plan? That's, that's the means, right? So the first thing, is there a plan? Second thing, are there the means to carry out the plan? Third thing, do you know when you would do it? Is there a set time? Is there a date circled on the calendar? Is there a time of day that the person is actually intending to go through with this? And fourth do you intend to take your own life? Do you have intent? And so we look at that as well. And so here are four levels of risk, right? Low risk is some suicidal thoughts, no suicide plan. The person insists they won't attempt suicide. Low risk. Moderate risk looks like this suicidal thoughts, a vague plan that isn't very lethal. The person says he won't commit suicide. High risk. Suicidal thoughts, a specific plan that's highly lethal. The person has the means, but they say they won't attempt suicide. Severe risk. Suicidal thoughts, specific plan that's highly lethal. The person has the means and they've got a time set. They're going to attempt suicide. Severe risk. So now we're going to go back to Bill. He's the depressed teenager that opened in our lead-in. And, and shared with you something about his experience. And now we've got Emma, who is with him, right? These are voice actors that are working through like some situations here. And I'm going to put some commentary in as they attempt to work through some of this stuff.
1: Emma, I don't know what's up. Brooke has just been ghosting me lately. She's the only thing I've really cared about in this life. I don't know how I can go on without her. People have said that the teenage years are the best years of your life. And if everything is just going downhill from here, I don't know how I can go on. I'm thinking about killing myself. I don't know how.
2: Don't kill it yourself. Please don't say things like that. You are cared about, and she does care about you. Maybe she just needs some time to herself to think things through. I don't think it's personal. I don't think she'd ever mean to hurt you.
0: Okay, so let's stop it right there. There were a whole series of mistakes that Emma made in that initial response. You can tell she's somewhat nervous. She's not liking what she's hearing. Her own parts are up. And her first response was to say, don't say things like that. You know, she's reacting to it. She's shutting down the conversation. She's making it less likely that bill will be able to continue to share with her so then she also starts speculating about things that she couldn't possibly know she doesn't know what brooke what her feelings were what her intentions are that's not things that she's privy to so it's not likely to have a lot of traction with bill who's struggling a better approach would be for emma to step back and let Bill talk. Draw him out. And let's see if she can do that. I don't know. I know, I know that, that. I've if looked God's up ways. If it's God's will
2: for you to be with her, you will be with her. You can't focus on just the bad. Maybe she's been really busy lately and just needs time to sort through everything.
1: Oh, I've heard so much about God. If God truly loved me, he wouldn't be sending me through this.
2: Maybe he would be sending you through this to set you up for opportunities to get grace. You can't say that. You can't blame God for your sadness. He, every, we're, it's not about this life.
1: Would God want me to be thinking about killing myself?
2: No, he wouldn't.
1: Then why is he even putting me in this position?
0: Okay, so here in this unscripted interaction, we're seeing that Emma continues to argue with Bill and now she's brought in the spiritual dimension. But as so often happens, When you bring in the spiritual dimension, you get stumped. There's a way that Bill was able to shut that down where Emma couldn't respond. She didn't know how to respond to that question of suffering. And again, I think this is because of the intensity of Emma's own experience. She doesn't like what she's hearing from Bill. She doesn't like the prospect that he might kill himself. She doesn't like what Bill's describing. She's she's caught up in it. She needs to calm down relax, and let Bill speak. Let him tell her what's going on. Because if it continues like this, Bill's going to get frustrated. He's going to assume that Emma's not really interested in what he has to say, that she doesn't understand, that she doesn't care, and he's going to shut down. The other thing to bear in mind is that emma is trying to tell bill what to do this almost never works again she's feeling anxious she's probably feeling inadequate she's horrified by the possibility that he's raising of suicide and she starts to get controlling she tries to get him to not think in particular ways to not do certain things. And so that's also going to breed some resistance on the part of Bill most likely. So let's see what happens next. Let's see if she can really back off and open up and listen to what he has to say.
1: She was the only thing in life that I really lived for. If, you know, in my... I've heard that my teenage years are the best years of my life, but if everything is going downhill from here, I don't know how I can go on. I'm really thinking about possibly ending my life.
2: Bill, that sounds really, really hard. I'm really sorry. Can you tell me more about what you're feeling?
1: well she she was she was the light of my life. she just, and now she's just gone. She didn't even give me a reason. I haven't done anything that I know of to deserve this and she's just she's just gone and now you know I'm just feeling so depressed I'm failing school I don't have anything else going for me it seems like and it's just I feel like it'd just be better if I was gone no one would care anyways
2: are you thinking about killing yourself
1: yeah I've been been thinking about it for a couple weeks now it's just she's been just slowly fading and now it's just
2: Have you tried to talk to her about this?
1: No, in the past when I've tried to open up about, I think, like, about personal stuff, she's always been just kind of, you'll be okay,
0: you know, kind of almost like suck it up. And it's just...
2: That's really hard. I'm sorry.
0: Okay, so this is going a lot better. Emma has settled down. She's now starting to draw Bill out. She's talking to him more directly. She's engaging with him. She's being with him. She's asking him to tell her more. So, much better approach here. And she's also empathetically connecting with him, You know, sharing how hard this must be rather than being caught up in her own agenda, rather than trying to control him rather than trying to deny what his experience is, at least as he understands it, not trying to correct any distortions and not trying to bring in a lot of spiritual stuff at this point that Bill just won't resonate with. So this is going much better at this point. And in response, you can actually start to sense that Bill is calming down. He's actually starting to engage He's stopping some of that perseveration, just there's some subtle shifts happening where he's now beginning to relate more directly with Emma. So let's see what happens next. The other thing that Emma did that was really good is that she inquired directly about suicide and the response from Bill was also very direct. He acknowledged it. It's now on the table. Now it can be discussed. So let's see what happens next.
1: So, I don't know. I, I'm i thinking. I'll probably be on the bridge tonight to think. Can I, don't I go
2: know. with you to think? You can open up to me.
1: I just want to be alone, honestly.
2: Sometimes not, that's not the best solution. Have you thought about maybe talking to someone, like a counselor? I know that when I went through a rough time, going through something similar, it really helped me to be able to open up to someone who knew how to help me.
1: I've thought about I've heard about it, but... I don't see how anyone can really help me.
2: You don't think maybe opening up could help? Sometimes talking about it makes you feel better. I know it's really hard, but they've been there, too, and they know how you're feeling, and they can help you.
1: Does anyone actually know how I'm feeling? Like, this is... And it's just... I feel so alone, honestly. It's just...
2: I know you feel alone, and it's really hard right now, but it... It can get better, and people are there to help you, and they want to help you get through this. Would you let me maybe talk to your parents about this so that they can help you, too?
1: My parents don't understand. They've, they've never understood me. They just think I'm just sitting in my room playing video games all day. They really just don't. They don't really care about me.
2: I know that when I've gone to therapy, it helped. If maybe I called, would you go to an appointment if I set it up?
1: i don't know do you really think therapy would help
2: i really do my therapist is really kind and she helped me get through a lot
1: i'll give it a shot once but after that
0: I, i don't know
2: i can go with you
0: i'll i'll give it a shot so here you see that emma is really getting into her stride she's continuing to empathize she's continuing to listen she's calmer And she's now providing that bridging function. She's facilitating the connecting between Bill and other resources that could help him. He wasn't open to his parents being involved. She went to another line, which was her own therapist. She offered to connect him with her own therapist. Now, if Bill's a minor, uh, that would obviously involve his parents again. But she's offering to kind of be with him in that journey to connecting to somebody else that may be able to work with him more directly. So, and you see now that Bill is opening up. He's agreed to at least one session. He's sensing the care, the warmth, the empathy, the presence, the being with that Emma is showing her. It's very different than where she started out in this. One thing I wanted to mention is that these are two teenagers. And they're actually just learning how to do this with you. We started out with them just role-playing and kind of seeing what happens. And very typical things come up in role-play as happen in real life. And as they moved through it with a little bit of guidance behind the scenes, for me, they got into a much more adaptive, a much more helpful dynamic. And so just with a little bit of coaching, you can see the difference there. And so I hope you can see the illustration of some of these points through this kind of role play. Now, once in a while, I find something that I get really excited about sharing with you. Some Catholic resource that I didn't know about before. And that happened when I was going through all of the research for these five episodes on suicide. I want to tell you about the Upper Room Crisis Hotline. The Upper Room Crisis Hotline is a faith-based hotline in the Catholic tradition. And the way they describe themselves is, quote, we are a non judgmental listening and referral hotline to clergy, religious, and laity in spiritual need 24 7. We bring comfort to those facing spiritual needs. End quote. I discovered this, like I said, when I was researching these episodes, and I wanted to find out more, so I called them up. And I spoke with Dr. Terry Smith. He's the executive director. I also spoke separately with Sister Mary Frances Seeley. She has more than 50 years of experience in creating, maintaining, and growing crisis hotlines. And she is now writing the definitive history of crisis hotlines in the United States. She's got a whole book that she's doing on this. The Upper Room Crisis Hotline started in 2004, originally administered to priests, brothers, and deacons. There's a lot going on at that time with the sex abuse crisis, a lot of distress in the clergy and in religious life. And since then, they've opened it up to everybody, not just Catholic laity, but everybody. And right now, they're averaging about 500 calls per month. They've gotten calls from 32 different countries. It's not just the United States anymore. And calls not just from Catholics, but also from Protestants, Jews, Muslims, agnostics, even atheists, people of all kinds of different beliefs. They've got a really major operation. They have 45 to 50 phone counselors. And these counselors go through an eight-week training session, four hours per week, eight weeks. It's substantial. They're trained by addiction specialists, psychologists, social workers, mental health professionals of different stripes. In fact, there's for those of you that may be interested in learning more about this, they have a new training that starts on September 2nd and runs to October 21st, 2021. It's on Tuesdays and Thursdays from 11 a.m. to 1 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time. And these are all Zoom meetings, so you can join from wherever you happen to be in the country. You can contact Dr. Terry Smith at... Catholic Hotline at gmail.com. Uh, there's also a web form on their website, which is at catholichotline.org. Check that training out. If you're interested in learning much more about crisis intervention from a Catholic perspective, it's an excellent place to be. Many of their crisis intervention workers are retired mental health professionals. They're all volunteered and it's all funded by donations. This is a worthy cause, and I will be donating to the to the Upper Room Crisis Hotline myself. The beautiful thing about them is that they bring in the Catholic spirituality. This is really important for Catholics, and it can often make the difference. Now, I asked Dr. Smith some really hard questions. I wanted to know how well-equipped his volunteers were to handle imminent Suicide crises. We're talking gun to the head type scenarios, right? Is this something that would really be better handled by the National Suicide Crisis Hotline, or is this something that they felt comfortable working with? And what he told me was that he's confident in his, in his team, that they're trained in imminent situations. And I asked if it would be better, like, to go to the National Suicide Lifeline. And he said, Look, If there is a faith component that the person seeking, if if they're open to, to discussing the spiritual aspects of this, then by all means, the Upper Room Crisis Hotline is able to take them on. They have the virtue of hope. They can address the specific spiritual aspects informed by the faith. Those are often so important to people. So, I was impressed with those answers. I felt comfortable passing on their contact information as a Catholic resource. And I was also really relieved to find them because as I was doing this series on suicide, I had considered setting up a Catholic crisis hotline within souls and hearts. But man, that is a lot of work. I'm so relieved I don't have to do that. I'm so relieved I don't have to reinvent the wheel that we have professionals that know what they're doing that have set this up. So, The phone number for the Upper Room Crisis Hotline, 1-888-808-8724, 1-888-808-8724. And you can find them online at catholichotline.org. All right, so what are our takeaways today? Well, starting at the beginning, to love somebody in that sense of Caritas, that sense of charity, that sense of agape, that love consists of three components, benevolence, capacity, and constancy. Secondly, our struggles to love others have more to do with our own internal worlds than with the other person. We need to monitor ourselves and care for ourselves when we're working for, with another person. And we also need to attend to our own human formation. That's so critical. So, the third point, suicidal loved ones are dominated by a suicidal part that blends with their core self and takes over, and they're driving the bus. Suicidal parts are not the whole person. They're a part of the person, and there are other parts that, aren't, that hold totally different ideas about suicidality. We just don't have access to them right now. The fourth point, you can be a first responder, and you can be a bridge to other resources. And the fifth point, If you are having suicidal thoughts or if you know of someone who is, you can contact the Upper Room Crisis Hotline at 1-888-808-8724 or the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. If you or a loved one are in immediate danger, like physical danger, you can also call 911. I want to hear from you. I want to hear from you. We've got our conversation hours that run on Tuesdays and Thursdays from 4.30 p.m. to 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Call me on my cell phone. Some of you have reached out to me. It's been great to talk with you. 317-567-9594. We can discuss anything related to the podcast that you want to talk about. could be this episode or any other episode that you've listened to. Second thing, pray for me and for the other listeners. really ask you to do that especially for humility for me to be open and docile to the graces that I get from God to lead this podcast and to lead the communities within souls and hearts really need to be small childlike really working on trusting and having confidence in God that's what I'm working on so I ask you to pray that for that for me and I am also praying for you third thing Many of the Interior Integration for Catholics podcast listeners are Catholic mental health professionals, Catholic clinicians, all you counselors, all you therapists, social workers, psychologists, psychiatrists, marriage and family therapists, all of you graduate students in mental health fields. I want you to I want you to know I've got a special invitation for you. I have a special opportunity for you to work with me. We are talking about the interior therapist community. Are you seeking greater insight into yourself as a clinician and better self-care? Are you looking for better human formation on the natural level, both for you as a human person and also as a therapist? Are you looking for deep personal connections with a small group of other Catholic therapists who understand the unique demands of our lives? Are you looking for therapeutic skills that can help your clients help themselves, especially those clients with complex trauma? And do you want all of this in a Catholic community of therapists committed to grounding internal family systems-informed therapy in a Catholic worldview? And would you like to work with me, your dear Dr. Peter, as your consultant? Here's an answer for you. The Interior Therapist Community Within Souls and Hearts. In September, psychologist Peter Martin and I were opening up four new IFS-informed foundations experiential groups Those are for Catholic therapists and graduate students in mental health fields. No previous IFS training is is necessary to participate. And I'll be working with you on a twice monthly or monthly basis, all about your own human formation, all about how your internal system impacts the clinical work that you do. Go to soulsandhearts.com backslash ITC, that ITC is for interior therapist community, and check out our landing page, soulsandhearts.com backslash ITC. There's a registration link with a lot more information about these groups. I'm also going to be hosting an informational Zoom meeting on Friday, August 13th at 7 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time. Register for that. Get your questions answered. You're also welcome to get in touch with me directly at crisis at soulsandhearts.com. That's my email address, crisisatsoulsandhearts.com, or on my cell at 317-567-9594 to find out more about how we can work together. And with that, we'll invoke our patroness and our patron, our lady, our mother, untire of knots, pray for us, St. John the Baptist, pray for us.